0: to try to cover in one lesson what really really should be two lessons so you know what that means right (laughs) we're in trouble already we're gonna start in john chapter 4 finish that chapter and then we'll be moving over to luke chapter 4 and we should be moving to matthew chapter 4 but chances are we won't get that far may just have to read your notes on that one all right let's go ahead and ask the lord's blessing on our time together father as we come before your presence this morning and we enter onto sacred ground, the sacred ground of your holy scriptures. May we ever rejoice, Father, in the fact that we even have such a marvelous written record from you, which not only tells us how to enjoy eternal life in your presence, but it tells us how to enjoy this present life to its fullest potential. Father, we thank you for the invitation from your Son, the Lord Jesus, which says to us, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, I would pray that our faith, each and every one of us, that our faith is growing and stretching with each new lesson from this life of your son. And I pray, Father, that as we are faithful to continue to look into the mirror of your word, that we will not become forgetful hearers, but that we will be doers of the work. That we will learn of him so that we will be more obedient in our following of him, and so that in turn we will be made more like him. Now we pray, Father, that you would bless this study of the scripture, place every word and thought into captivity to Christ, for we pray in his blessed name. Amen. All right. We are moving in our general outline, which I believe you have at the beginning of your books. We are moving from the year of Christ's obscurity into His year of open popularity, just so you want to kind of follow along with where we are in our life of Christ study. Now, Galilee, we have been talking quite a bit about Galilee, which is in the northern province of Israel had been prepared by God Almighty down through the corridors of history for the coming of his son's ministry. It was an area which was populated by different peoples and different cultures over the years of its history, and therefore it was an area of Israel which was more prone to the acceptance of new personalities and new ideas. And so in this situation, it was prepared ahead of time by God for his son. It was also very strategically located the world's leading highways passed through its borders. Peoples and merchants, therefore, from everywhere, traveled eventually through Galilee. It was also surrounded to the south by Samaria and to the north by Syria and Phoenicia. So along with the many passing travelers um, and the surrounding Gentile peoples that lived around Galilee, the mixed population of its citizens... You remember it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. So there are many Gentiles which lived in Galilee as opposed to um, Judea to the south. There weren't as, nearly as many Gentiles living down there. This made Galilee an open door for evangelism, the gospel message. And Galilee was also heavily populated. At the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, there were over 200 cities in Galilee with a population of 15,000 people or more. So there were many people who lived up there. It was where most of Christ's public ministry was conducted as well. This is where the bulk of his public ministry will be conducted. It was also where most of his, or I should say at least um, half, or a little bit over half of his miracles were performed, was in Galilee. And we will be looking at his second miracle this morning, the healing of the nobleman's son. So, with this lesson... Jesus Christ was ready to establish himself once again in the province where he had spent the majority of his childhood and early adulthood because he had grown up in Galilee, had he not? He had grown up in a Galilean town called Nazareth. We'll also be looking this morning at Nazareth and their rejection of him. All right, so the title for our lesson, the 19th lesson in our Life of Christ study is... Nobleman's request and Nazareth's rage. And you can see we're going to be looking at four subdivisions. The return to Cana bypassing Nazareth. That will be the first thing we look at. Then a request from Capernaum by a nobleman. Then we'll move to looking at rejection of Christ by the Nazarenes. And if we have a little bit of time, we might just touch lightly on his residence in Capernaum of Naphtali. So let's begin by looking at John chapter 4, starting at verse 43. And I'll finish in the middle of verse 46 as we talk about the Lord's return to Cana, bypassing Nazareth. All right, it says, now after two days, where were those two days that he had spent? Right, Sychar of Samaria. After the two days the Lord spent with the Samaritans, he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. That was the Passover feast. For they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. All right, stop right there. The two fruitful and very joyful, wonderful days that the Lord had spent in the Samaritan village of Sychar were ended. And he left to go to Galilee. And there is a lesson in this for the Christian. No matter how successful or popular a Christian might be in a particular place of ministry, if it is the Lord's will for that Christian to, to move somewhere else to minister, then he must or she must obey. He must move on, even if it is a place where he has to start his work all over again. Success in one area of ministry must not cause us to remain stationary if God is bidding us to move on, move elsewhere. You see, it would have been very easy for the Lord Jesus Christ to have stayed where he was there in Samaria because he had been accepted, he was very content, he was happy with those people who were so hungry— to hear more and more about him, that would have been very joyful and very wonderful if he could have just stayed put. However, he knew that it was God's will for him not to stay there. He knew God had another uh, program for him and that he needed to go on, so he left and he went into Galilee. And we are told it was God's will. You don't see this in John's account, but over in Luke 4.14, it says that he returned in the power of the Spirit. Into Galilee. So once again, who was leading him to go where he went? The Spirit of God. On the other hand, you know, um, if we're happy and content and in our comfort zone in a ministry, uh, we're not to stay there if the Lord says for us to move, right? But if we're not happy and content in a ministry and it doesn't look like we're doing much and yet the Lord doesn't tell us to move, we're to stay put. So it, it works both sides. All right, but you you know... You have to be close to the Lord to know what his will is, don't you? All right. For the Lord Jesus to travel... Let me get my little map back up here. And Mary, it is good to see you back. And I can't wait to see the little... It's uh, Michael, right? Michael. She's got two boys, Gabriel and Michael. Isn't that neat? (laughs) Two angels. All right. So for the Lord to travel from Sychar in Samaria if you can see my little map up here well actually let me put this one up that'll be better here's where he was in Sychar the heart of Samaria for him to travel up to Cana which is where he went first what would he have to walk right past or right right around his own hometown of Nazareth he'd have to either walk right through it or right around it and it may well have been John the Apostle's hindsight knowledge of Nazareth's rejection, which we're going to discuss later in this lesson, which prompted him to record the words which we find in John four forty four, where it says, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. You see, since John the Apostle, who wrote this gospel, did not include the account of Nazareth's rejection of Jesus in his gospel. He um, simply seems to be reminding his readers of how the Lord was rejected in his own hometown. So I imagine that as the Lord and his disciples passed by Nazareth to go to Cana, John recalled how Nazareth rejected him, and so he stuck that verse in there. All right? Now, the Lord's rejection in Nazareth, which we will be looking at, it stands in stark contrast to his reception in Samaria. You know, you would really think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't you? That he'd be accepted in his hometown, but, but it wasn't that way. When Christ was with the Samaritans, they believed in him because of his words. You know, it's not recorded that he performed any miracles at all in Samaria. So when they believed in him, they received him, it was totally because of his words. However, in Galilee, in his own territory where he grew up, his own country it's called, He encountered an inferior type of faith. The Galileans received him. Yes, it says that in verse 45. They received him, but they received him because they had seen or heard about the incredible works he had done, the incredible things that he had done in Jerusalem following the Passover feast. Remember, the first thing he did when he got to Jerusalem was pretty amazing. He single-handedly cleansed the temple and then after the Passover feast, it said that he performed a number of miracles. They weren't recorded what they were, but he performed a number of miracles. And many Galileans, of course, had been in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover, and they had seen firsthand these miracles. And perhaps many of them had watched him clean the temple out, too. So no, no doubt they reported these things throughout Galilee when they returned from celebrating the feast. And thus, when when Jesus returned, finally came back to Galilee, they received him. Now, he had been in Galilee before. That's when he was in Cana, and he he turned the water into wine. But he was a nobody. Nobody really even knew who he was. Now, after his trip to Jerusalem, uh, he had become pretty popular. This is about nine or ten months later people knew who he was all those Galileans came back to Galilee and spread the word so now as he comes back into Galilee he's received but not because of his words like the Samaritans now he's received it says because of what they had seen and heard because of his works he was received so that was an inferior type of faith unlike the um, the Samaritans the Galileans lesser faith needed to see signs before they would listen to sermons. So the Lord's great Galilean ministry, which we are now embarking upon, his great Galilean ministry, was one which contained a vast multitude of miracles, beginning with the healing of the nobleman's son. And this miracle took place... In the little village of Cana, which is exactly the same place where the first miracle took place. The miracle when he turned water into wine. And if you ever want to do a little study on a comparison of those first two miracles, both in Cana, it's interesting to, um, to see some of the comparisons. For one thing, I'll throw this out and you can just meditate on it and see what you come up with. I'll probably talk about some of the other things as we go through this lesson. But one comparison, which is interesting, and I'm not really sure what to make of it, is that they were both third-day miracles. Turning the water into wine and healing the nobleman's son were third-day miracles. There must be some significance in that, so if you want to think about it, let me know. And you can look up John 2.1 and John 4.43, and you'll see what I mean. All right, that's all I'm going to say about his return to Cana. Bypassing Nazareth, let's move now to the request from Capernaum by a nobleman. And for this, we'll read the rest of verse 46 and go all the way to 54, the end of the chapter. After it says, Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. It says, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard the nobleman, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him. That he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Uh, Let me just throw this in while I'm thinking of it, okay? Um, Another comparison between the two first miracles is that both were requested by someone on behalf of someone else. Mary requested that the Lord perform a miracle on behalf of the wedding party because they were out of wine. And the nobleman made a request on behalf of his son. And uh, both of them, after they made their requests, were rebuked by the Lord, as we just see what we just read here. Except you see signs, that's a rebuke. All right? And you know he rebuked his mother as well. All right, let's go on. Verse 49, the nobleman saith unto him, sir, come down ere my child die. And another comparison is that in both cases, even though the the requesting parties were rebuked, they still went ahead and asked the Lord to do the miracle anyway. And he did. All right. Verse 50, Jesus saith unto him, go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Another thing is that in both of the first two miracles, the servants were involved in the miracle, and they were blessed, and I believe that they all were saved. Well, I know the servants in this situation were, all right? Then verse 52, Then inquired he of them the hour which he began to amend, And they said unto him yesterday, and wouldn't you know it, what hour was it? (laughs) At the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. That's how I know the servants were saved, because the whole house would include the family and the servants. All right? Verse 54, this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Almost as soon as the Lord Jesus arrived in Cana, which was approximately two or three miles from, or is, I should say, from Nazareth, there's Cana and there's Nazareth. Can you not see that? All right. As soon as he got to Cana, he was approached, almost as soon as he got there, he was approached by a nobleman. Now, in the Greek, the word for nobleman is Vasilikos. even though it looks like a B, a B in Greek is pronounced as a V. And uh, if you have a son or a husband named William, this is, my father's name was William and his sisters, my aunts always called him Vasilikos. That was a, that's the equivalent of William in Greek. And in Greek, it mean, means king's man. That's a good name, right? King's man, or belonging to the sovereign. I like that even better. Now, some Bible scholars believe, therefore, or suggest that because of the title, king's man, he, this nobleman was an officer of Herod Antipas, who was locally known as king. But he was really a tetrarch. And by the way, let me throw this in. Um, You know, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested and imprisoned by Herod Antipas, he left Judea and went up to Galilee, seeing that as a sign from God that it was time for him to begin his ministry, him to increase now that John was decreasing. And some people have said, well, Jesus ran up to Galilee in fear of Herod Antipas. But that is so incorrect because Herod Antipas was Tetrarch over Galilee and Perea, not Judea. So when Jesus left Judea and went to Galilee, he wasn't doing it out of fear of Herod Antipas. He was going right into the territory where Herod was Tetrarch. Basically, people called him king. So anyway, back to this nobleman. It's interesting that... Um, If he was an officer of Herod Antipas, this would mean that he was a Gentile. And chances are pretty strong that he was indeed a Gentile. But whatever his association with Herod Antipas was, this certain nobleman was a man of station. We know that because he had uh, servants. He also had a son. And the nobleman's son was so sick that he was, what, at the point of death. So desperate, the nobleman traveled from his son's side in Capernaum, where they lived, to Cana. And here's a map again, so you can see the distance here from Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee over to Cana was approximately 22 miles, which would be a day's journey. Also, it was uphill because Cana is at a higher elevation than Capernaum so when you see it says going down that sounds like it's wrong since Capernaum is north but it's because they're talking elevation here so when he left Capernaum to desperately go seek Jesus who he heard was in Cana the nobleman had to travel a day's journey uphill alright and uh, he did that probably because he had heard of the miracle in Cana some nine or ten months earlier when Jesus had turned water into wine, and probably he had also heard about the miracles that Jesus performed in Jerusalem. If he had not been there himself, which if he was a Gentile, he would not have gone to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But he had heard about these miracles from the other Galileans who came back and reported about them. So, you see, when he received word that this miracle worker was now back in Galilee and that he was actually over in Cana, uh, he wasted no time seeking him out. The nobleman evidently had a measure of faith in the healing power. You know, a small faith... had a measure of faith and it was in the healing power of jesus christ or he would not have sought him out in the first place correct absolutely he so he had what we could call a beginning faith in jesus he had heard about jesus and he came to him he had enough faith to leave his dying son's side and if you think about that that's pretty incredible right there because it says his son was at the point of death would you leave your child if they were right at the point of death, in order to travel 22 miles, um, not knowing if you would ever see your son again, and not knowing either if Jesus would even come back with you, especially if he's a Gentile and Jesus is a Jew. You know, there had to be a lot of apprehension as he's traveling that, that distance, would I, will I ever see my son again, and will this man, Jesus, will he be willing to come back with me to heal my son The measure of the nobleman's beginning faith in Jesus, as I said, was small, but at least he had it. But he did have two false impressions about the Lord's power. First, he wrongly assumed that Jesus could not heal from a distance. In saying, sir, come down to Capernaum, ere my child die, he was limiting the Lord's power. He assumed that Jesus could only heal someone if he was in their very presence, That's why he said, you know, you have to come back with me. You have to come down to Capernaum because it was elevation down. In other words, he believed that Jesus had to have like a hands-on type of healing for his son to be uh, made well. And so that's one mistake he made was that he thought Jesus had to heal right there in person, not from a distance. The second false impression that he had about the Lord was that Jesus had to arrive before what? Death before death before the the son would die. He said, "Sir, come down ere my child die." In other words, before my child die. He did not believe that the Lord's miraculous power would have any effect at all after death, and you can understand why he would think that. But to his credit, though the nobleman uh, did move to stage two of his faith. Uh, faith process he had beginning faith and then he moved to stage two because he demonstrated a persistent faith and so this is to his credit that he was persistent and we know this from um, verse 47 the greek verb which says that he besought christ that is given in the continuous tense and and it literally conveys the idea of begging you see the nobleman was desperate he knew that there was no, I'm sure he went to Jesus as a last resort. I'm sure he probably tried all the physicians and everything else that he could think of. So you know, again, his faith was very small here, but uh, he, was, he was absolutely desperate and he knew it. So he wasn't concerned at all about his pride. He put his pride totally aside because his life's son, his, his son's life was hanging in the balance here. And so he literally begged Jesus and he kept begging him. That's why I have a picture here of of a man persistent. You know, he keeps knocking, 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 uh, like we should do in prayer with the Lord. So he was was not, he was humble, he was persistent, he was earnest, he was sincere. And even after the Lord rebuked him, as I mentioned, we find that he swallowed his pride and he didn't argue with the Lord, He, he didn't quit, he just kept on asking him. What did the Lord say? by way of a rebuke of this man and also really not just to the man and we know that uh, he was speaking to more than just the nobleman. in verse 48 we know because of the little word ye which is given in the plural so he was not only talking to the nobleman when he said this but to the crowd that was apparently standing around listening to all of this he said except ye meaning like in the south you all except you all see signs and wonders you all will not believe that was his rebuke y'all i'm sorry that was a northern southern you all right (laughs) (laughs) y'all in effect the lord was saying to the man and of course he wanted the listening crowd to get this message also he was saying unless i physically come down with you and you see me perform signs and miracles you won't believe is that right That's what he was saying to all of them. I have to physically do this. Go down with you. And you have to see these things with your eyes. And that's the only way you're going to believe, right? He wanted, he wanted to, he's going to do just what he did with the Samaritan woman. And what he tried to do with Nicodemus. He was going to try to stretch his faith. And so he's trying to get him to, and the crowd, to understand, to have faith, not in just seeing things, but faith in his words. In the power of his word alone, the nobleman was, of course, desperate. If you can just imagine a father, you know, knowing his son was at the point of death and could even have already died. If he, you know, it took him a day to get there, so he doesn't know what the situation might be. But his head was not clear enough for him to quite get what the Lord was telling him, because he he still goes. It's almost like the Lord didn't even say anything in verse 48. He goes right on in verse 49. And made the exact same request, he said, as he did in verse 47. It says, he says, sir, come down ere my child die. But, however, at least, again, as I mentioned, he didn't argue with the Lord. He didn't get defensive by saying, you know, what are you saying? Are you saying I don't have strong enough faith? What is this? You know, what, why, why did you say that? He didn't get defensive at all. He just kept on asking. He had a total recognition of his desperate need for the Lord's help. And, uh, but still, he still limited the Lord to distance and death, all right? Now, there were others in the scripture who also limited the Lord's miraculous powers in, in the same way, by distance and death, you know, thinking that he had to be there in person, and he had to get there before death. One such man was Jairus. If you remember the story of Jairus, he went to fetch the Lord because his daughter was at the point of death. And uh, when he got the Lord and the Lord said, yes, he'd go back with him, he was, he, his hope, you know, elevated and he was all excited. But when his servants came out and told him it was too late, that his daughter had already died, what happened to Jairus' faith? It plummeted to the bottom because he thought it's too late. Well, first of all, he limited the Lord by, by distance, just as the nobleman, because he wanted the Lord to come back with him to his home. And secondly, he, he thought, you know, now that his daughter had died, it was too late, that the Lord, the Lord couldn't do anything about it. Another uh, situation of exact same situation is um, the story of Martha and Mary regarding Lazarus. They both, both sisters said to the Lord, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. In other words, if he had been physically present, he couldn't heal from a distance If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And, of course, now that he died, it's too late. So they had the same problem. If we contrast the faith of these Bible characters, the nobleman, Jairus, Martha, Mary, with the faith of the centurion, and he was a Gentile, in Matthew chapter 8, remember him? He sought out the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of his dying servant we find a real significant, uh, a significant difference between these characters. The centurion, just like the nobleman, was also from Capernaum, and likewise, he was also a Gentile. However, he said to Jesus these words, he said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak what? Speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. You see, he had the faith, to believe in the Lord's words alone he didn't, he didn't believe the Lord had to be there With that servant He just said speak And I know that he will be healed So it's no wonder that the Lord It says marveled at this man's faith And, and he responded to him by saying Verily I say unto you I have not found so great faith No, not in all Israel And it came from a Gentile Right. And he called he said, great faith. There were only two people that Jesus ever said they had great faith Two people. And they were both Gentiles. One was this centurion and the other one was a woman, a Gentile woman. Was it the Syrophoenician? I think it was the Syrophoenician woman. But uh, so you see the difference. This the centurion. Um, just believed in the Lord's spoken word. He did not have to see a miracle with his own eyes. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? He said, yeah, sure, Thomas, now you believe because you've seen. You've seen the nail prints in my hands, and that's why you believe. But he said, blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. This is important for you and I because we haven't seen, have we? We have to believe just totally on The word, the word of God. So it's very, very important. Also, it's important that we know that Jesus can heal from a distance because he isn't with us anymore, is he? He's at a distance. Well, although he lives within us. But, um, and also, does it matter if it's after death that we're we're all going to be resurrected? So it doesn't, after death doesn't matter. Actually, for the Christian, there is no death. We're instantly in the presence of the Lord. And one day even our bodies will be resurrected. All right. Well, what was the Lord's response to those two different approaches? The one by the centurion and the one by the nobleman? Well, what's interesting is to see that to the centurion who had great faith, the Lord actually proposed that he would go with him back to his servant's house. He said, okay, I'll go with you. No, he didn't need to, but he, you know, because the man had great faith, he said he would go with him. But to the nobleman, he didn't offer The nobleman wanted him to go to his home, but Jesus did not offer to accompany him. Instead, he rebuked the man, you know, by saying, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He wanted the nobleman to focus on his word. Now, he didn't need to do that with the the centurion. He already was focused on his word and his power and his authority. But he has to help the nobleman along to focus on his word instead of his uh, wonders. But the Lord, who is so gracious, the Lord did honor the man's persistence by saying to him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Isn't he gracious? And isn't that a wonderful sound? (laughs) New life. Uh, So he was going to stretch the man's faith by giving him a charge, which was go thy way. That's a command. He's going to get him to, to act on his word alone. And then following that charge, he gives him a promise. Thy son liveth. So the third stage of faith for the nobleman, which was the trusting, obedient, acting, working faith, whatever you want to call it, occurred in his heart because the scripture tells us in verse 50 that what did he do? He believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and he went his way. What he did there was he acted on his faith. His action, you see, showed that he was putting some degree of faith in the Lord's promise. He was obeying the Lord. The Lord said, go thy way. So he's showing obe- obedience. And then he was showing faith in the Lord's promise that his son would live. So he's moving. He's gone from beginning faith to persistent faith to acting faith here. So in saying, go thy way, thy son liveth, the Lord was testing this nobleman to see if he did indeed have enough faith to just simply believe in his word without seeing anything physically. Did he see anything? No. His son was 22 miles away. He didn't see a thing. The Lord just said, go ahead. It's going to be okay. He was telling the nobleman that he would not accompany him. You know, go without me. I'm not going to go with you. And um, because essentially he was saying it was unnecessary. His power was great enough to heal from any distance. <clears throat> Now, in this story, of course, we also learn a great Bible truth. We learn a lot of Bible truths, but one is that the Lord will do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And this was certainly the case with this noble man, because Jesus not only healed the man's son, but he healed him instantly. On the man's return trip to his home in Capernaum, his servants came out to meet him in order to share with him the good news that, of his son's healing. And, you know, I think the servants and the noblemen must have, must have had a good relationship in this because they were so excited to get back to, to, to their master, the father of this young boy, and tell him this good news that they left immediately when the fever left the boy. So I think there was a good relationship, and I think this speaks highly of the nobleman as an employer. Anyway, unknown to them, they used the Lord's exact words, when they gave the nobleman the good news. They didn't know what Jesus had said to the man, but when they saw him coming, uh, they said, thy son liveth. Exact same word. So that helped confirm the man's faith. And he entered into the fourth stage of his growing faith when he asked his servants when his son's healing took place and received their answer. <clears throat> he sought to know the exact hour that his son began to recover. <clears throat> and that's in verse 52. It says, Then inquired he of them the hour when he, the son, began to amend. He wanted to know the hour he began to recover so that the healing would be confirmed to him and to the servants that it was a supernatural work of, of Christ rather than some you know, coincidental healing of nature. And his servant's response to him truly did confirm his faith because he discovered that his son was healed of, the, of his deathly fever. Now we know what the son was dying of. He had a high fever. That it, that he was healed of that fever at the exact hour that the Lord had said, Thy son liveth. So the nobleman's faith was not only confirmed by the servant's response, but it was further stretched, which is what the Lord wanted it to be, stretched. And that's what he wants with you and I, too. He's always seeking to stretch our faith, and that's why we're studying his, uh, the, the life of Christ. That's where we study his word is so that our faith will stretch. And every week my faith stretches as I see Christ and his, his, just the wonder and magnificence of his person. The nobleman, now, if you notice that I pointed out in verse 52, he thought that his son's healing would be gradual. You know, after all, he had been at the very point of death. And you can pick up on that by way of his question when he asked when his son had begun to amend. You know, when did he begin to amend? However, there was no beginning to this boy's amending. You know, normally, if somebody is, is uh, going to be- get better, it's sort of a gradual process, Right. But here, there was no beginning. It was just instant. It was a total healing. There was no natural course of healing. <clears throat> it was a divine miracle. And the, and the servants indicated this when they said, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever, what? Just, just left him. Totally left him. I imagine the boy instantly sat up in bed and said, Hey, Mom, I'm hungry. You know, it's just one minute he was at the point of death, and the next minute... Totally well, no recovery, period. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about the nobleman. He said that the nobleman, quote, looked for the ordinary course of nature, but here was a miraculous work. He received far more than he reckoned on. How little we know of Christ and how little we believe in him even when we do trust him. We measure his boundless treasure by our scanty purses true end of quote well we're told of course that it was the seventh hour that the boy was instantly healed and this indicates to us of course the perfection and the completeness of the miracle and of the miracle worker himself who spoke the the words that healed him at the seventh hour so it was a perfect and a complete miracle for not only did christ physically heal the son but also he spiritually healed the father and that's what really made this miracle complete and perfect. <clears throat> Verse 53 states that when the nobleman learned that his son was made well at the exact hour that Jesus had said to him, and this was the day before, and I told you it took about a day to get back. So apparently his servants met him just sort of right outside of Capernaum. Uh, but anyway, at the exact hour Jesus said to him, my son liveth. It. it uh, we know he believed because it says he believed in verse 53. Do you notice that? You say, well, I thought he already believed. No, this is where he really believed. This is where his faith went the full distance <clears throat> when he was what we would call born again. This is where he put the full weight of his faith on Christ. His faith in Jesus's promise, you see, had been confirmed and now he put his faith in Christ's person. And... He was saved, and we know it just like we knew with the Samaritan woman. How do we know he was saved? What's the first thing he did after he ran home and probably grabbed his son and hugged and kissed him and cried and rejoiced with his wife and any other children they might have had? Can't you imagine just everybody just crying with great tears of joy and how wonderful it was that they had their son back again? What was the first thing he did after that? He just like the Samaritan woman. He... He shared about Christ with all of them. He witnessed to them. And that shows us that the man truly was saved. Because when you're saved, you don't want to just keep Jesus to yourself. You want everybody to know, everybody else to know. And so the first ones he shared with, of course, were every member of his household. And we know this because it says in verse 53 that not only did he believe, but his whole household, which would include his son, His wife, any other children he might have had. I don't know, maybe his mom and dad lived with him. Whoever else lived with him, they were all saved and the servants. The household would include the servants. And I thought it was interesting to think about the fact that this nobleman may have been um, uh, one that worked in in the palace of Herod Antipas. And the Lord works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? He put a Christian in the very palace with Herod. And who was in the basement? Who was in the dungeon of that, of that palace? John. John the Baptist. Maybe the nobleman had the keys and could even go down there and talk with John the Baptist. I mean, you know, you could make a novel out of this. Some people do. They write stories about this. But uh, very interesting. All right. It's also very interesting to realize that there are there were at least three cases, different cases recorded in the Scripture, where the Lord healed Gentiles, and. Uh, In each one of those cases, which was here with the healing of the nobleman's son, also the centurion, we've already talked about him, the centurion's servant, and the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. That was the healing of three different uh, Gentiles. And in all three of those instances, they were healed from a distance. Jesus spoke the word and and the individual was healed. And there is a very obvious reason for this. You see, the Jews were in a covenant relationship with god but the gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of israel and strangers from the covenant covenants of promise therefore to illustrate this jesus healed them from far off as it tells us that the gentiles were in ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 and this is how he illustrated this, by healing them from a distance. Now later on, of course, after the Lord would shed his precious blood on the cross at Calvary and die for all men, then believing Gentiles were no who believe believing Gentiles were no longer far off, were they? We were brought nigh, we were brought near by the blood of Christ. We were grafted in to the family. So that Abraham is our spiritual father. But that's that's interesting. Well, this true story here gives us yet another beautiful example of the workings, the mysterious workings of sovereign God. He took a boy who was at the point of death and he used that seeming tragedy to bring an entire household to the point of eternal life. He's the master at, at working all things together for good. And we need to remember... This, that when trials and troubles and tribulations and testings and tragedies come, they may be blessings in disguise. The tragedy of this event had caused, you see, a very worried, anxious, concerned father to seek out the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was definitely positive. I guarantee you, his family in heaven and his servants in heaven today are rejoicing over the fact that that little boy was at the point of death and that their daddy and their master sought out Jesus because of that. You see, we have to see things from God's perspective. Even at funerals, you know, you always pray, like I shared with you last week. The Lord can use the death of someone to bring someone else into the kingdom, and that one who is in heaven would be rejoicing and happy and glad for it. We just have to stop looking from our perspective, and see things from God's perspective because it's a whole different ballgame. All right, let's look at the rejection of Christ. All right, Terry, I buried my outline. I always try to be so careful to keep it out, and then I forget what I'm doing. All right, you find it and put it up there if you don't mind. Let's look at the rejection of Christ by the Nazarenes. We've got to move fast, so let's move over to Luke chapter 4. Thank you. Luke chapter 4, and we'll read verses 16 to 31. It's a pretty long passage here. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, which is Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, which would really have been a scroll... He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. In other words, what are they asking for there? We want to see something. We want to see a miracle like we heard you did in Capernaum with that nobleman's son. That's what they're saying. Verse 24, and he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. That's what John remembered him saying when John wrote that over in verse 44 of chapter 4 of his gospel. All right. And then he teaches them a little something here. He says, but I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, which is Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, which is Zarephath, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha. Seas, which is Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They were angry and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, passing through the midst of them went his way his way and i really think that was a miracle <laughs> and came down to capernaum a city of galilee and taught them on the sabbath days okay we stopped there the lord left cana and he walked a few miles, two or three miles, over to Nazareth. Now, perhaps he went to see his family. You know, it had been about nine or ten months since he had performed that other miracle of turning water into wine. So it had probably been nine or ten months since he had seen his mother and his brothers and sisters. And, of course, when it was the Sabbath, which was Saturday, he did what he normally did, and he went into the synagogue. Um, and a synagogue, by the way, what synagogues originated during the time of the Babylonian captivity. When the Jews were carried off to Babylon and they no longer had a temple in which to worship, they would get together, the Jewish people in captivity over there would get together in groups to worship God and to, to, it kind of became a worship and social thing for them to get together in small groups and in little meeting places and these little meeting places began to be called synagogues. And to have a synagogue, you had to have at least a minimum of 10 Jewish men. But there were synagogues in every little village and every little town all throughout Israel. And so he went to the the synagogue there in Nazareth, which we would have called, in our language, his home church. That was his home church. And so you know that everybody in Nazareth went, now Jesus was famous, okay? He was their famous hometown preacher boy who was making it big time. You know the whole the whole countryside had heard about him, and so everybody in nazareth don 't you know was in that synagogue that day, and they all expected him to say something and so when it was time for the the reading, Jesus stood up there was customary reading of course, of the scripture and this is good that synagogues always put the emphasis on the word of God, not entertainment the, the Word of God was the focus anyway Jesus stood up, and by doing that he was he was uh, showing them that he He uh, wanted to take the office of the maftir. The maftir was the one who read and taught in the synagogue for for that day. Um, And priests and scribes were eligible to be the maftir or any Jewish man who felt a real uh, leading of the spirit to teach and um, to read the word and teach that day. And so he was telling them he wanted to be the maftir. And then the synagogue attendant, seeing him rise and stand, would have passed him the scroll. For that day, which happened to be from the book of Isaiah, and it says that Jesus went to the place in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, to um, select his reading, and it that was a passage which everybody knew was messianic. In other words, it foretold how the Messiah would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to do such marvelous works as preached the. the gospel to the poor, and uh, heal the broken-hearted, proclaim deliverance to the captives, recover sight to the blind, set at liberty to the bruised, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And when Jesus ceased reading, it must have really seemed strange to, to the people listening. If if they knew the text, it would seem strange because he stopped mid-sentence. He ended Isaiah 61-2 With the words to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, but he didn't finish the sentence. The rest of the sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Why did the Lord Jesus stop reading where he did, in the middle of a verse? Well, his reason, although those listening to him wouldn't have known this, they wouldn't have understood this, but his reason was because Isaiah 61, verse 1, and the first part of verse 2 have to do with his first coming. While the day of vengeance of our God, which is mentioned in the latter half of verse 2, has to do with his second coming, exactly the day of the Lord, which concerns the events of his yet future return. Haven't been fulfilled yet, even in our day. So, you see, Jesus stopped reading where his then present mission in the world was to end. He didn't come into the world at his first coming in order to bring the day of vengeance, did he? No, he came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Well, when he finished his reading, he closed the book or the scroll and then he returned it to the minister who would have been the synagogue attendant and he sat down to teach the people. And I thought that was really interesting. They used to, the teachers used to sit down in order to teach. That would be, I would like that. That'd be a little easier on my feet if I could teach sitting down and have all you guys stand up. How about that? Let's try that next time. but he sat down to teach however before he began any of his teaching which by the way would be his first record his first sermon but we weren't given what he taught he took that passage from isaiah 61 and taught on it but we don't know what he taught whatever he taught the people marveled at it but uh, it wasn't recorded for us all right but anyway before he began his teaching which, you know, in his teaching, I imagine he told them about the true nature of the Messiah. You know, that he wasn't going to come in order to deliver them from Rome, but he was coming to deliver them from sin and Satan and the world and their flesh and like that. That's probably what he taught on. But before he did any of his teaching, what did he say to them? Something that just absolutely shocked them. He said, and this is when all eyes were fastened on him, Uh, He said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So in no uncertain terms, he was declaring to them that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's messianic prophecy. He was telling them that he was the Messiah. And surely his hearers were surprised and shocked. Yet, as he proceeded with his teaching, Luke does tell us that they wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. You see, no one, and I can say this dogmatically, (laughs) I know it for a fact, no one had ever heard a man speak like this before. No one had ever heard a man speak with such authority and such grace and such knowledge and such compassion. And they just wondered at his words, they probably felt strangely moved in their souls. And they, I'm sure not one of them, well, I know not one of them could any find any flaw with his exposition of the scripture. Yet, at the same time, you know, after they're sitting there kind of in a trance listening to him and amazed and marveling and in wonder and everything, then, then it would be like they'd have to shake their heads and, and get back to reality. And, and somebody must have been the first one to say, wait a minute, what are we thinking? He can't be the Messiah. We know him. He's Joseph's son. We know his family. Joseph was just a carpenter. Remember, he took over his father's business. A carpenter can't possibly be the Messiah, possibly be the, the royal heir to God's kingdom. And so what were they stumbling over? The Nazarenes were stumbling over the Lord's humanity. They thought, that they, knew, they thought that they knew everything about Jesus since they had seen him grow up in their midst. And yet, you know what the reality is? They knew absolutely nothing about him because the one thing they thought they knew about him, which was that he was Joseph's son, wasn't true at all. <laughs> he wasn't Joseph's son. That's the one thing for sure they thought they knew and they were totally wrong. He wasn't Joseph's son. Whose son is he? He's God's son the response of the nazarenes was not like the response of those in jerusalem or those in capernaum or those in cana the nazarenes you see had seen jesus for at least twenty six or twenty seven of his total years of life the people in the other places that i mentioned had only been with him for a very short time you know maybe a day or two but they had not they could not have witnessed his perfection and his sinless life over a long span of time as the Nazarenes did. You know, there would have not been one single person in Nazareth, man, boy, woman, girl, brothers, sisters, his mother. You know, remember, his brothers and sisters were probably in that synagogue this day. Not one of them stood up for him. I'm sure it absolutely crushed his mother. But anyway, um, not one person in Nazareth could have been able to give a testimony of a time in Jesus' life when they had seen him sin. You know, not one man could stay up, stand up and say, oh, I remember the time I went to the carpenter shop and he didn't do me right. He, he cheated me. Or, or what he presented me was not top quality and yet he made me pay for it. Not, not one uh, brother would be able to say, well, I remember a time when I got him angry and he hit back at me. Or I saw him in the street one time when he when he threw a rock at that dog <laughs> you know nobody could come up with one single thing to say negative about the lord jesus christ so you see the nazarenes were rejecting the testimony of his entire sinless life and they're going to be they're held more accountable because of that in matthew 13 which discusses actually the Lord's second visit to Nazareth. It's hard to believe that he went back there after what they did to him, but he did. You know, he is the God of the second chance. He gave them one more chance, but they failed there too. The statement is made that he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You see, their situation was not like the nobleman's. The nobleman um, had a little faith which needed to be stretched. That was not their situation. Their situation was one of rejection, asking for proof. You know, they said, physician, heal thyself. In other words, do something for us like you did with the nobleman's son over in Capernaum. Um, so their situation was one of rejection. They already had it made up in their minds. And I think there was a lot of jealousy involved. I think that's why a prophet is never accepted in his own country. Because, you know, all the little, other little mamas and papas, they didn't want to see Mary's son, Joseph's son, succeed and be the Messiah. Don't you know they would want to see their son be the Messiah? I think there's a lot of jealousy involved in this situation, but um, the fact of the matter is that no further amount of proof would have ever convinced them because they already had all the proof they ever needed. They, They had all the proof by way of his sinless life, which he had lived before them, for 26 or 27 years, they also had the testimony of others who they had heard about, and, you know, John the Baptist, and others who had seen him perform miracles. When they went down to the Passover feast, they had now his own testimony. He declared to them who he was, and they even had the prompting of the Holy Spirit, who had caused them initially, you know, to wonder at the at the graciousness of his words. So even the Holy Spirit was involved in testifying to them who he was. So knowing their disbelief, and we'll close with this, the Lord spoke uh, a proverb, the same one that John had mentioned in, in chapter 4, verse 44, and it was a Jewish proverb about a prophet having no acceptance or honor in his own country. And then to illustrate the proverb, he gave two examples from the Old Testament scripture. <clears throat> one had to do with the prophet Elijah, and one had to do with the prophet Elisha. Okay? Now, in Second Kings 17, we're given the account of Elijah, and the widow of Zarephath. Elijah, remember, was you know a prophet of God who tried to call the apostate nation of Israel to repentance. She she was turning away from God. She was turning to false gods. She was being disobedient, and he tried to get her to repent. And he even even demonstrated his divine authority by shutting up the heavens for a total of three and. Um, was it three and a half years? Yeah, three years and six months. There was no rain. And because there was no rain, there was a great famine in the land. However, the only person who received any personal benefit from Elijah's ministry during those three and a half years was a Gentile woman from Zarephath. She was Gentile, the widow of Zarephath. Because the prophet was not accepted in his own country and his message was ignored, his people, the Jewish people, were not, accept, uh, were not uh, the, bene- the recipients of any of his miraculous benefits. You see, he kept the, the widow alive. You know, she was at the point of death, too, because she was going to run out of food, but he kept her alive during those three and a half years of famine. And didn't he also raise her son from the dead? Yes, I think he did. I think that was the one. He raised her son from the dead. But uh, she was the only one who benefited from his uh, miraculous powers. There were many hungry Jew- Jewish widows in Israel at that time. But the only one that he fed was a Gentile. And that's because she believed God's messenger. She believed the word of God's messenger. And the Jewish people didn't. So the Jewish widows went hungry and the Gentile widow was fed. All right. Then uh, he also told the account of Elisha, who, like his predecessor, Elijah, attempted, also attempted to deliver a message of hope to the people of Israel but again they rejected his message and they did not turn to Jehovah God for help the only individual to receive any benefit from Elisha's ministry just like the widow of Zarephath was a Gentile and he was a Syrian general by the name of Naaman and uh, he was a leper He had been struck with leprosy. And of course, there were many Jewish lepers in Israel in Elisha's day, but only the Gentile leper benefited from Elisha's ministry. And it even took him a little while to get it, didn't it? (laughs) But at least he listened to one of his servants and he did dip himself. He obeyed God's word through his messenger, Elisha, and he dipped himself how many times, of course? Seven times in the Jordan River. And when he obeyed, he was healed of his leprosy. So by way of these two Old Testament examples, the Lord Jesus was trying to show the citizens of his hometown of Nazareth that they, his very own people, were about to miss a great blessing. Once again, because they wouldn't listen to God's messenger. They would not accept his word regarding his identity. So they would become like the many Jewish widows uh, because they were about to lose their bridegroom. And they were about to become, um, they would also be like the many lepers of Israel for their sins would not be cleansed. You know, leprosy is a picture on the outside of what we all are on the inside. And so they would not have their sins be cleansed by his perfect sinless blood, which he would shed for them on Israel, Israel, on Calvary, excuse me. So they would become widowed. They would lose their bridegroom and their leprosy would not be cleansed. Their sins would not be cleansed due to their unbelief. They would receive no blessing from God. Well, after listening to Jesus speak of God's blessings given to Gentiles rather than to Jews, the Nazarenes were told were very, very upset. They were filled with wrath. They did not, for one, they did not appreciate appreciate being identified with apostate unbelieving Israel, and on the other hand, they certainly didn't appreciate hearing how God had turned to Gentiles when he was rejected by the Jews. So in their rage the people of the synagogue, the people in the synagogue rose up. It says, and they thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereon their city was built. And there is, I've been to Nazareth, and there is a, a cliff that just goes straight down. And they know that that would be the place they would have taken him. They know that would be the exact place. Now, can you imagine this mob? Probably everybody in the town was at that synagogue that day to hear him. And so there's this mob scene where they're, and he, he's in the midst of them, and they're pushing him. I don't know what his poor disciples must have been doing at this time, but, but they're pushing him toward the brow of this hill to cast him down headlong. I mean, they, they had every single intention of plummeting their hometown preacher boy to his own death. Isn't that amazing? You know, this is, again, this is a, a situation of racial pride here. Well, however, it was not the Lord's time to die, was it? No, it wasn't. And, not, and neither was that the way he would die. That wouldn't fulfill scripture, would it? If he was, if he was killed by plummeting over a, a cliff. So here's what I think is another miracle. Really, it just says that he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Now, I don't know how he did that. I have no idea how he did that. I don't know if, if he made himself invisible I don't know. Or if there was just suddenly something so majestic about him and so authoritative that nobody dared to be the first one to lay a hand on him. Maybe that was it. And he just walked right through the midst of them. And they all stand there with their jaws hanging open. thinking, How did that happen? I don't know. But anyway, it was a, it was a miracle. And this, by the way, was the first attempted murder of Christ during the time of his public ministry. And I say his public ministry because there had been an attempt to kill him at another time, but that was before his public ministry, and that was by who? Herod the Great when he was two years old. So the Lord was actually here declaring to the citizens of Nazareth the same truth that he had demonstrated to his own disciples when he had stayed in Samaria with them for two days. He was telling them that whether Jew or Gentile, the only thing that ultimately matters would be one's faith in him, in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Samaritan, or Gentile, right? And he was using their own scripture, the Old Testament, to show them this. The rejection of the Nazarenes really gives us a prophetic foreshadowing of the rejection of the entire nation of Israel in the days ahead. They rejected him and so would Israel, we know. But uh, his illustrations of the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian prophetically pointed to the belief that would come instead from who? The Gentiles, the Gentile peoples who would one day make up the vast majority of his church. So again, everything is is really prophetic here. Well, his residence in Capernaum of Naphtali, I figured you probably would have to Read about that on your own, but essentially, what it says there is that he made his. He went to Capernaum, and that's where he would make, um, that's where he would set up his headquarters for his whole Galilean ministry. Would be in Capernaum, and did you know that in doing that he fulfilled another messianic prophecy, which is found in Isaiah chapter nine verses one and two? Because it says in Isaiah nine one and two, that um, there would be a light to shine in Galilee of the Gentiles. And uh, it would therefore be in that remote area of Galilee that um, the, the Messiah would be a light <laughs> to Gentiles. And it, sa- it, it says that it would be in the border, or no, it says it would be in the land that was given to Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun, and the land that was given to the tribe of Nephtalim. And what is really interesting is that Capernaum is right on the border of the land that was given to Zebulun and Nephtali so I fulfilled another prophecy which probably most people don't even know about all right thank you it's 1130 let's close in prayer (laughs) perfect all right Father we thank you that no matter that no matter what it may be that unbelief demands in our lives it is all given for us all of it is given for us right in your holy word and Jesus Christ meets those demands whether It's a demand for signs, the lowest level of faith, or whether it's a demand for sermons or a demand for the Savior of the world to free us from sin and guilt. You meet every single one of those demands. Thank you, Father, that Christ is always ready and willing and gracious to satisfy our demands for faith when we ask and seek with genuinely open and honest hearts which really, truly desire to know the truth. I pray, Father, if there should be still one among us who has not yet received Christ into her heart as her personal Lord and Savior, that today, this very day, your Spirit will draw her to you, that she will take that step of faith in opening the door of her heart to allow Jesus Christ to have entrance. And for those of us that already have accepted your free gift of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, may our prayer be this, Lord, may it be, To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask to be like him. So meek and lowly, so pure and holy, all I ask to be like him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.